I really want to thank you for the help received at that time uh, for Joplin. Really was dis- devastating. I think there was uh, uh, the the tornado um, was a mile wide, and uh, it went through Joplin and carved a path eight miles long, and everything in that path was destroyed. It was uh, unbelievable to see it. One thing that was encouraging, and I want want to spend the time in the scriptures, but just to share this with you that um, <clears throat> those of us that went down to work there. We took lots of gospel tracts thinking we'd meet lots of unbelievers, but everybody who was there as a volunteer that we met was a born-again Christian. And uh, it really was a, a tremendous thing to me to see that we're still committed to good works, um, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And uh, I thought it was a tremendous thing, and I, I asked the question, where are the gays and lesbians, uh, where are the atheists? They weren't there. But the believers were there. And we did things like this. We'd clean up somebody's yard, and uh, we would go and see the person, and we'd give them a Bible. And we'd say, sign it with all, everybody who was on the crew cleaning up the yard, and say, the reason we've done this is because we love the Lord Jesus, and we want you to know him too. Would you take a Bible from us? Nobody ever refused. You know why? Because good works paves the way for the gospel as well. So I thank you for your uh, contribution. It was We were able to help uh, one family particularly, uh, who had served the Lord as missionaries for many years in both Mongolia and in Brazil. And uh, they had come back and retired, bought a house, and lost everything. It was completely devastated. And uh, they were elderly uh, in their early 70s. And uh, it's tough to start over at 70 years of age, but your help was a big help to help them in, in just making a new start after all losing everything. Well, uh, let's look at Luke uh, chapter 12, and I was assigned this while I was up at Yosemite, and uh, of course, uh, you know, when you're at Yosemite, you don't have the ideal conditions to prepare or study. I have never spoken on this before, so this is, if you like, somewhat fresh from the oven, and uh, I'd like to read from verse 35 down to verse 48, Um, Luke 12, 35 down to verse 48. We'll take the time to read it. He says, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. And Peter said to him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing." Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, 
and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. And again, we believe God will bless the reading of his precious word to us this morning. Now, when you look at the overall uh, theme of Luke 12, there are several things that are going on here, and uh, there's a shift of teaching uh, by the Lord from worry about the present. Uh, I guess perhaps if you're going through this sequentially, you would have noticed that, but verse 22 talks about, uh, he said to his disciples, therefore I said to you, take no thought for your life, uh, what you shall eat, neither for the body, that what you shall put on. And so the focus is moving from worrying about the present. And it's easy to worry about the present, isn't it? Uh, people get all anxious about, especially in the day in which we're living, right? I mean, it looks like the, uh, the government's going down the tubes. Uh, California's already gone down the tubes, right, in terms of... Uh, I mean, it just it seems like, how are we going to survive here? The, the whole world is seemingly imploding. And so it's very easy to get caught up and become anxious about, about the moment, Where's my next meal coming from? How's it all going to work out? And so uh, he talks about that for a while, but then he moves on and he talks about being watchful about the future. In other words, what he's saying is don't be so caught up in the now that you take your eyes off the fact that the Lord is coming, right? We've got to keep our eyes focused there. Now, uh, the overall themes of chapter 12, you've got hypocrisy in 1 through 12. He talks about the Pharisees and he condemns them for their hypocrisy. And then we've uh, just mentioned, really from 13 through 21, he talks about anxiety. Uh, people who are concerned about now, about the moment. And then we've got the theme, really, that answers all of these other issues, which is the theme of the second coming of Christ. Of course, you've got covetousness as well, don't you? In uh, verses 13 through 21, you've got the covetous man. And um, just think about these things in terms of the coming of Christ. First of all, the hypocrite. You know, there's no point being a hypocrite because when Christ comes, he's going to take the mask off. Right? And the word hypocrite means wearing a mask. It comes from acting. And in the days before makeup artists and all the rest of it, actors would do plays and they would have a different mask for different characters. And so the idea of a hypocrite is somebody who's wearing a mask. What he's doing is he's pretending to be something he isn't. And, and that's okay if you're an actor, but it's not okay for a Christian. We don't want to be playing a role if it's not really true. God wants reality. And it's easy to wear the mask, isn't it? Depending where you live, you've got the right uniform. Uh, we were in Ireland as missionaries for a number of years, and uh, the assemblies there particularly, they're almost all gospel halls, and, and there's a uniform. There's a black suit, there's a white shirt, there's a dark tie, there's dark shoes, there's a big black Bible under your arm, and there's a certain uniform, and if you wear the uniform, you're one of the boys, right? It's, you know how to play the role, right? But God sees through all that sham, and He sees the heart. 
And when the Lord Jesus comes, he's going to unmask all the hypocrites and he's going to make the reality known. So there's no point us playing games. No point you playing church. There isn't. Because the Lord's coming and he's going to, as it were, publish from the mountaintops what's really going on. Hypocrites will be unmasked. The covetous who are caught up with accumulating junk are going to lose everything at the coming of the Lord, right? You know what? Because this world is going to go up in a puff of smoke one day, isn't it? So there's no point amassing stuff. Uh, One thing, and of course he talks about a man uh, that's laying up much goods for many years, and he he says, you know, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then who's who's going to get all this stuff? Uh, There's no U-Haul trailers behind the funeral hearse, is there? It just don't work that way. Uh, My father passed away a couple of years ago, and my dad was of that generation that was born after the war, and he didn't throw anything away, even bent nails, he kept them. And we had to throw out all his stuff. It took us three, three months to clear the junk out of his house because he couldn't take anything with him. Folks, you can't take anything with you either. When the rapture comes, uh, you won't have any baggage weighing you down, right? You're just going. So don't be caught up with stuff, right? Because uh, keep the coming of the Lord in your minds. And then anxiety. The problem with anxiety is, uh, if you look at verse 29 of the previous chapter, it says, Seek not... Ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. And, uh, you know, people that are, that are anxious are held back from serving the Lord because they're of a doubtful mind. I, I know people who have been exercised about the Lord's work and they've never moved because they're fearful. Is God going to provide for my daily wants? And so they've not took the step of faith because they've got a doubtful mind. And the doubt is in God. Is God able? And uh, the problem is that the opportunity to serve the Lord is running out <laughs> because He's coming. And so all this paralysis where you're wondering, is God able, is He not, is He? And all the time you're doing nothing, right? But if you could really be gripped with the fact that the Lord is coming, you don't have time to waste wondering if He can or if He can. It's time to step out because the Lord's coming. So we say this chapter is about being watchful about your future. And it begins with this thought, let your loins be girded and your lights burning. The loins girded would speak of a mission to be accomplished. Uh, we just came back from India. I was in India for six weeks, and, and the area that I was in in South India, uh, they wear a thing called the dhoti. I don't know whether they call it in Andhra Pradesh a dhoti as well, but the guys wear long skirts. Now, uh, they wanted to buy me one, and I said, that, you know, if I wore one of those to our meeting, I'd be put out of fellowship, you know. They think I was a cross-dresser or something. But over there, it's okay. They wear long skirts, but interestingly enough, uh, they, they, they kind of put them up and took them up somehow and make them like shorts when they're working. Am I telling the truth here, brother? Yeah, right? Uh, in other words, because you see, having the long flowing skirts, you'd kind of trip up, you see, if you were trying to do work with that. So they, they kind of fold them up and they tie them up. And so the idea is this, that when he says, have your loins girded, he, he is saying to you, you've got a, a mission to be accomplished. There's a task to be done. 
So he said, the Lord's coming, and whatever you intend to do for him, you better get on with it. Okay? It's time to serve him now and do that thing that God has put into your mind and be busy about it. You have a mission to be accomplished. It's interesting that is used again in the New Testament. Peter talks about um, girding up the loins of your mind. And what he's saying is, you see, the other thing is to move quickly, you don't want a long flowing skirt, you want it tucked up, you see. And what he says, don't let anything into your mind that will cause you to trip up. Very easy, isn't it, to let things in our minds that cause us to trip up spiritually. You've got to really guard your mind. So your loins girded, and then he says, uh, let your lights be burning. There's a testimony to be maintained. And you know, the closer we get to the end of the age, the darker the world's going to get, isn't it? But it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's quite a question, isn't it? And so the idea is that in the light of the coming of Christ, make sure your testimony, your light is shining brightly. Because actually the light shines brighter the darker it is. Did you know that? It does, doesn't it? If you're in a city full of lights and you put a light on, well, it doesn't really look outstanding. But if you're out in Yosemite and it's all dark and you light a light, boy, it really looks bright. And so the idea is that we need to uh, maintain that mission, that testimony, uh, mission to be accomplished, testimony to be maintained. And so he says, let your loins be good about your lights burning. Now, I want you to notice, um, usually when I uh, study a passage, one of the things I look for is the repeated words and phrases. And the key phrase that I see in this passage is the word servants. Notice verse 37, blessed are those servants. Verse 38, if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Uh, We see it again in verse 43, blessed is that servant. Verse 45, but and if that servant... Uh, Verse 46, the Lord of that servant. Verse 47, and that servant. And the idea is this. It's a very simple idea, but a profound idea. And that is this, that while the master is away, the servants better be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Because the master's coming, and he better find that that servant is a faithful servant. Now, contextually, we could say that we're supposed to be servants of the Lord. All of us, right? Every one of us. We're meant to be servants of the Lord. And, and the Lord is coming, so how will He find you when He comes? Are you going to be a faithful servant that will hear from the Lord Himself, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Right? That's what we want to hear. That's the music that will, would be delightful to our ears. And so that's the context of this whole passage is, is how should a servant behave in his master's absence? And you see, it's very relevant, isn't it? Because um, you know what it's like when the boss is away, what happens in the workplace? Right? Right? We can kind of kick back and relax now, right? The boss is out of town. Well, our boss is out of town. But by the way, he's always watching. That's the difference, right? Our boss sees everything we do. By the way, Jesus is master and Lord, isn't he? And so the idea is this, that because the master and Lord is away, and of course, uh, it seems that it's been a long absence. 
There's a tendency for us to think, well, the boss is away. We can just live as we please. But he's saying, "Uh uh-uh. One of the problems is you just don't know when the boss is going to show up. And you don't want to be found doing something or not doing something that you ought to be doing when he comes. And so that's the theme of this. And so he gives a a little illustration, uh, a parable, Peter calls it. And and so he says, in verse 36, he says, And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he return from the wedding. And we don't want to get too theologically caught up in all this. He's just using an illustration. And here's the illustration that the servants are left behind and the master is getting married. And the thought is this, that while the master's away getting married, and usually Jewish weddings take place in the evening, so he could come back from the ceremony kind of late. And we want to make sure that the servants are ready to welcome him when he comes back from the wedding and serve him and be ready to do what's necessary uh, in that case. So that's the picture. And uh, it really is an emphasis on uh, this, uh, the servants being ready for him to come. And so what does he say? He says, um, you yourselves like to men that wait for their Lord when he'll return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. What an embarrassment when the servant comes back and he's married and, and, and there's nobody there to open them the door or welcome them in or to, to have the lights on and have the place ready to entertain uh, the, the, uh, the, the bride and bridegroom when they come back. And again, I don't want you to think about this theologically. It's just a simple parable that he's giving. And so the, the thought is this, that they need to be watchful and alert and ready I mean, that's the whole idea, watching for that moment that the master approaches so they can uh, serve him diligently. And notice what it says. It says, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. I often said that if anybody is going to get the crown uh, for loving his appearing, it's my wife. She uh, has always loved the coming of the Lord ever since she got saved. And she'll ask me over and over again, she'll say, Mike, if you knew the Lord was coming back this month, what would you do differently? And it grips her. Her daily life is caught up with the coming. That should be true of us all, shouldn't it? Isn't that how we should live? And for a long time, I would struggle with the biblical answer, but I've got an answer for her now, and I'll, maybe if we get time, I'll tell you what the answer is. But, but it, it, how should we be living? And that's the thought, the master's coming. And, and so he says, uh, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. And then you notice what he says, truly I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Here's the unusual part of the story. Usually, the bride and bride come, come back, and what happens is the servants kind of rush into activity, and they start serving them. And the bride and bridegroom are kind of like a king and a queen coming in. But our our master is totally different, isn't he? Our master happens to be the perfect servant. Remember the disciples? Remember the disciples and uh, they had gone into that upper room and on the way in, guess what they were talking about? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? 
And it caused great dissension amongst them. You know why? Because uh, maybe Peter said, well, I am. And then uh, John says, oh, no, you're not. I am. And they began to argue about who was the greatest. And, of course, it's like Yosemite. Their feet got dusty. All right? I can understand that a whole lot better now I've spent a week at Yosemite. My feet are, well, they're not now. I got them cleaned up. But they were black. And so the idea is this, that, that usually, they were usually, especially something like the Passover, they would have completely been clean, except walking there, their feet would have been dusty. And usually there'd be a household servant there, and he would wash their feet. And so they're too busy deciding who's the greatest to think about some menial task like washing feet. And the Lord Jesus took the towel, girded himself, and washed their feet. Isn't that amazing? And the Lord Jesus said this in Luke's gospel, actually, Luke 22. Uh, he, he said, in, and that's verse 27, he says, I am among you as one that serves. Isn't that tremendous? What, what a tremendous master we have. He is a servant leader. By the way, that's the way church leadership should be too. It's servant leadership. It's not lauding it over the people of God. It's serving them. That's true leadership. Because that's, the model is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And so the Lord serves them. What a remarkable Savior we have. A humble servant. And so then he goes on and he says... Uh, if he'll come in the second watch, I'll come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. See, the third watch of the night was from 9 p.m. till midnight. We said it's going to be in the evening, this, this marriage ceremony, and therefore, uh, you know, it could be sometime between 9 and midnight. And you know, when it gets to that kind of hour, well, you see, I'm an early riser. When I get past 11 o'clock, I'm just kind of, I just turn into a pumpkin. I'm, I'm useless. But you see, the Lord's coming, and, and you know, the longer it goes on, and the world goes further and further into the night, it's easy for us to forget that He's coming, and to get sleepy, and get slack. And then He says, well, not, never mind, second watch, nine to, to midnight, what about third watch, from midnight to three o'clock in the morning? Interesting, isn't it, as church history has rolled on through the centuries, the fervency of expectation of the Lord's return began to grow dim, didn't it? The early church, they were certainly looking for the coming of the Lord. Paul, when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the earliest New Testament letters, he talks about, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. He expected he was going to be one of them. The Thessalonian church, they were waiting for the Lord from heaven. They were, not, they were just idle. They were busy working as well. The gospel was going out from them all around, but they were waiting for the Lord from heaven. But as time went on, the church lost that blessed hope. And it was revived in the 1800s, and, and uh, although there's always been a remnant that have believed it, but in the 1800s, all of a sudden, it began to thunder out again that Christ is coming, get ready. And there was a tremendous revival movement that was caused by people daily living in the expectancy of the coming of the Lord. The very movement that that 
spawned in the 1800s, I think, have begun to lose the love of the coming of the Lord. How many times do you hear series in this assembly on prophecy anymore? And again, I don't know. Maybe you hear it all the time. If you do, you're rare as an assembly. You know, I hear so many testimonies of people in the 50 to 60 age range, and when they tell you the testimony, they'll say, well, they'd had preaching in their assembly about the, the end times and about the rapture of the church. And they talk about being in the house as a little child, and, and it was all quiet. And they wondered, well, they couldn't hear mom and dad breathing, and they wondered, are they being raptured, and I've been left behind? And they would go look for them and then earnestly ask mom and dad, tell me how to be saved. I could tell you hundreds of testimonies like that. It was such a potent weapon in the gospel. Why don't we preach it anymore? Why don't we bother with revelation? I hear people say, oh, it's too complicated. I don't want to bother with revelation. It's a book you promised a blessing for reading. We need to get back to being known for prophetic ministry. Do you know the, the Brethren movement? It was a youth movement. We, we talked about that up at camp, that, that uh, the youngest person there in 1826 breaking bread was 19 years of age. The oldest was 28. In, the, in their mid-30s, they were the world's leading experts on Bible prophecy. Isn't that something? What about today? What about young people today? Young, younger ones here, do you understand the book of Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel? Why not? You got all the helps you possibly need. Voices for Christ, 55,000 messages. If you can't find help there, uh, you're not looking. Commentaries galore, most of them online. Bible software. That you, you know, it used to be people had to go through these heavy concordances. They were like the New York telephone directory. You just have to do one key on your iPad or iPhone, and you, you've got the verse you're looking for. You don't have any excuses. But what's happened is, the longer it's delayed, there's an apathy that is beginning to occur amongst the people of God. And I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about New Testament assemblies. And we've got to get back to looking, anticipating the coming of the Lord, and preaching, get ready, He's coming. <clears throat> so, no matter how far into the night of world history we go, we need to be ready because the Master could show at any moment. Verse 39, it says, And this know that if the goodman of the house, changing this, the picture now, he's now talking about a, a householder or a homeowner and a thief coming to his house. And he says, If the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. You see, thieves don't usually make appointments, do they? I'm coming to break in on Wednesday night at 11.30. Is that okay? Make sure you've got all your goods out for me. <laughs> you see, you know, we'd be there, especially uh, in the Midwest and Texas. And we'd be there with a double-barrel shotgun waiting for him, right? <laughs> we'd see him off, no problem. But you see, they don't make an appointment. They come when you don't expect them. And... The Lord Jesus, the Bible says, nobody knows the day or the hour. But it does say this, in this very passage, be ready. Be ready, right? Don't lose everything. Now, you know, materially, we've already said we're not going to take anything with us. 
So it's not our material goods, but if we're living for this world, we're going to lose any reward we might possibly have if we live without expecting the Lord's coming. And so we don't want to lose everything. A Christian either leaves his wealth or goes to it. Think about that. When a Christian passes away, he either leaves his wealth or he goes to it. Are you sending on ahead? Are you laboring for the master in the day of his absence, the day of his rejection, and sending on ahead so that you've got treasures there? Or are you living for the here and now? Common theme, isn't it, this idea of a thief in the night in the Bible? I remember watching a movie years ago made my hair stand on end. It was called The Thief in the Night. It was pretty scary. But the idea is the Lord is coming. And so he says in verse 40, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Can we just make that emphasis there? He's saying, Be you therefore ready. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? Good question. If he come today, are you ready? Listen, let me tell you something. If he came today, one of the ways you've got to make sure that you're ready is you've got to make sure you're saved. I'm not assuming that everybody in this room knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. There's going to be a lot of people when the Lord comes. And the interesting thing is that what's going to happen to them is that because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved tells us that they'll be sent a strong delusion, that they'll believe a lie. See, God takes men seriously. You know that? He really does. And what he says is this, I want you to believe the truth. I believe that the truth is taught here. We want you to believe the truth, that Jesus is the only Savior, that you're a sinner, that you need to trust in Christ alone for salvation. God wants you to believe the truth so that you could be saved. But he says, if you don't want the truth, I'm going to take you seriously. The alternative to the truth is what? The lie. The alternative to Christ is the Antichrist, the man of sin. Right? The, the alternative to believing the one who is the way, the truth, and the life is deception. And so what he's saying is, you better be ready. Are you ready? Do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? That if Christ came, you, and if the rapture occurred while we're speaking, you wouldn't be left behind. Do you know that? You can know, you know. The Bible says these things are written that you might know you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not a good person. I want to tell you that. But I have a great Savior, and I know that I'm saved. And if the rapture comes, I know I'm going. And what a difference that makes. Isn't that a tremendous blessing to know that? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Christian, are you ready for the coming of the Lord? You know, the Bible always talks about the second coming very practically. For instance, it says that he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It's a purifying hope. I don't want to be caught watching some vile thing on the internet one minute and the next minute look into the face of my Savior. It really would purify. If you really believe the Lord could come at any minute, it would really purify your life, wouldn't it? 
Because that's exactly what's going to, it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just like that. And if you're doing something or watching something, you know you shouldn't, and the next minute you're looking into the face, that lovely face of the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you, there'll be some, the Bible says, who'll be ashamed before Him at His coming. And so, Christian, are you ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Be ye therefore ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Now, Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, do you speak this parable just to us or to everyone? And the interesting thing is, of course, we know Peter's often the spokesman of the group. But what we find is that the Lord doesn't really directly answer his question. But he does say this, and he, and he leads before us two servants, one's faithful and one's wicked. A faithful servant and a wicked servant. So he says, verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward? I like that word steward. Steward is somebody that handles things that belong to someone else. Joseph was a steward in Potiphar's household. And God gave him, or Potiphar gave him everything apart from his wife, right? To handle. In other words, we're looking after someone else's affairs. God has given us his riches to administer for him in the day of his absence. The word of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the truth of God, right? And so we're stewards. And there's two things about stewards. One is that they better be faithful. And secondly, they're going to give an account, right? That's just the way it is with stewards. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 4.2, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And uh, Luke 16, verse 2, he talks about a steward must give an account. Folks, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, I want to tell you something, that one day you will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for the things done in this body, whether good or worthless. We're accountable as stewards, and we will give an account for our service as servants for the Lord. We're stewards, and there's a day coming. And so we need to be faithful. We need to recognize we're accountable. And it's interesting that he tells us here that this uh, faithful and wise steward whom his Lord will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Contextually here, what it's telling us is that the steward is meant to feed the household. And of course, 1 Corinthians 4.2 talks about that. We're stewards of the mysteries of God, right? We're, in other words, the truth of God has been deposited with us. And we're to use that and, and share that and feed people with the truth of God. That's what we're to do. And so we want to make sure that we're faithful stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. I, you know, I read that verse one day and I was so convicted. I had never done a series on the mystery doctrines of the Bible and I felt very convicted. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God and I've never taught about the mystery doctrines. So guess what my next series was? The mystery doctrines of the New Testament. I want to be a faithful steward because I realized one day I'm going to give an account to the Lord Jesus. So we want to be faithful, don't we? We want to be good stewards. And so notice this, that not only is a servant watching and waiting, he's also working. In other words, he's not sat there on the couch with the remote waiting for the master to get back, right? He's actually busy about the master's business waiting for him to come back. And we need to be working and waiting and watching. And so he, he talks about this and he says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find 
so doing. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus said? Occupy till I come. You know, the thing that gets you in trouble more than anything else is idleness. Do you know that? The sin of Sodom was pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. I, don't, I hate holidays. you know that? My kids will tell me. You know, every time we go on holiday, I preach usually. I hate holidays. You know why? Because I get in trouble. Right? David, when he should have been fighting a battle, guess what he was doing? He was getting a suntan out in the backyard, and he saw a woman. Remember the rest of the story? He got into all kinds of trouble because he had too much time on his hands. There's a time that kings should go to war, and he wasn't. And so the idea is this. We need to occupy until he comes, be busy about the master's business. <clears throat> and so he says, um, blessed. We see that a few times in here. How incredibly happy is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Interestingly enough, when you find somebody who's faithful and doing what they should be doing, you know what you end up doing with those kind of people? You give them more stuff to do, don't you? The reward for faithful service is more faithful service. The, the, the guy you pick to do something is usually the busiest kind of a guy. Right? Because they... They know what it is to work, and they know how to work, and they, they get things done. The last thing you want to do is give responsibility to somebody who's irresponsible. Sometimes in churches we think well, that's the way to work, right? You know, this guy, this kid, you know, they're, they're, they're indifferent, they're apathetic, let's give them a Sunday school class. Then they might get interested. I'm sorry, it don't work that way. You commit things to faithful men. Right? You don't give people who are unfaithful things to do. You give it to faithful people. And so he says, um, this one, because they're faithful in the day of their master's absence, when he comes, he's going to give them rule over all things. And that's the whole principle, isn't it? Right now, guess what we're doing? You and I are training for reigning. Our service now in the day of his absence is going to determine our service in the millennial kingdom. Did you know that? You're training for reigning. And we will reign with Him. And depending on how faithful we are in the day of His absence will depend on our role in the millennial kingdom. <clears throat> then He goes on and He talks about the unfaithful uh, servant. And many believe that the Pharisees are at the back of the Lord's mind here because you know, they, they were people that you know, they believed that uh, in, in, in the God of the Bible and they believed in the, the Scriptures and all the rest of it. Uh, but something happened with these people. Notice what he says, verse 45, And if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming. Notice where it all starts. He says in his heart. You know, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, isn't it? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So in his heart, he's thinking the Lord's delaying his coming. And part of it is, some people in Israel were looking for the first coming of the Lord Jesus. They were eager for that coming. They, they were looking, longing for the consolation of Israel. People like, like Anna. Remember people like Anna? They, they were longing for that day. They never lost the promise of the coming of Messiah, but the Pharisees obviously did. They knew the Bible. In fact, when, when Herod wanted to know, uh, you know, the wise men were coming, where, where's he going to be born? They said, oh, that's easy, Bethlehem of Judea. They knew all the answers. 
But you notice they didn't go to Bethlehem of Judea. They weren't looking for the coming, first coming. And it's amazing how many religious leaders today in the world, unsaved religious leaders, why why would anybody want to be a preacher if you're not saved? That just blows my mind. I guess it's a good career option, maybe, (laughs) with a good pension. I know in England you get a house, you know, kind of the the manse or whatever it is, and you get all kinds of stuff. Maybe that's part of it, and you're kind of somebody in in the community. Maybe there's a certain prestige to all that, but it just blows my mind why anybody who is not saved would would want to do that. If I didn't know the Lord, the last thing I want to do is talk about Him. The very fact that I'm saved, it means I want to talk about Him. But there are people like that. And um, well, notice what happens. It says, if that servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat his men servants and maidens and, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. I want you to notice what's happened here. Because he's lost the thought that the Lord is coming, he started to act like a Lord rather than a servant himself. You notice that? He's beating the other servants. And he's feeding his face eating and drinking and getting drunk. It's interesting how the Lord talks about that so often, eat, drink, and be merry, always in the context of losing the hope, hope of the resurrection, right? First Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, well, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There's nothing beyond this life, so you might as well live it up. In the days of Noah, what was the thought the Lord Jesus said? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking. Is there anything wrong with eating and drinking? Christians do it a lot, don't they? Right? But the idea is this. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving. That's kind of an honorable thing, isn't it? To marry and give in marriage. We're not against that, are we? But the idea is they were so busy with now that they didn't realize that judgment was about to happen. That's our world, isn't it? People are caught up with the moment. What am I going to have for dinner? Right? It's all about the moment. And they've lost sight of the fact that the Lord is coming. And so he says that these that are servants, but they're acting like lords because they've lost the sense of His coming. And the Pharisees were like that, weren't they? Uh, one of the chief places in the synagogues and, and all this kind of stuff, they, they, they were like despots in many ways. Put burdens on the people. They, they were not servants. They were masters. And he says, The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him, and an hour when he's not aware will cut him asunder, will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Can you imagine how shocking it would be for a religious leader to find himself in hell with the unbelievers? You see, he's somebody who supposedly got all the answers, right? He's been to seminary, right? He supposedly knows God and knows the Bible. I have a friend who's a great evangelist, and he loves to evangelize clergymen. And he goes up to them and he says, you know, you must know an awful lot about God. That's how he always starts. And the guy kind of, chest kind of comes out, and he starts to, well, I guess, you know, I have studied all this kind of stuff. And then he asks them, well, do you know God? He says, I may not be a great theologian, but I do know God. And he's, he's led a number of them to the Lord and then teaches them, and they start teaching it in their pulpits. Pretty soon they lose their job. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> but the point is a very simple point, isn't it? That um, 
there are people who are very religious and they're lost and the last thing they expect is to be given a portion with the unbelievers because we're professionals after all. But that's what's going to happen. And the servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew it not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. To whom much is given, much shall be required. The idea is that there are degrees of punishment. The degrees of punishment in the Bible are based on the amount of light. That's why the Lord says it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than Chorazan and Bethsaida because they had more light. By the way, let's just not lose the application to our own hearts, shall we? To whom much is given, much will be required. What about the average teaching in the lifetime of an assembly? How much light do we have? We have much, do you think? We have a lot of light. Much will be required, right? Because we're basking in light. One person said, and I think they're quite right, the problem with assemblies is we've got lots of light and not much heat. <clears throat> what we need is light and heat. Knowledge and passion. It's lacking sometimes, right? After all, we don't want to be called charismatic. You know, we don't want to be too zealous, too enthusiastic. Listen, if we can't get enthusiastic about this stuff, there's something wrong with us. So, um, and I'm sorry, I'm over time. I apologize. But, you know, when you give me this number of verses to do and expect me to do it in a short space of time, you're just not understanding something here. <laughs> Folks, I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. Be ye therefore also ready. Are you living this day in the light of that day? Because that's the way we should live. Live today as if the Lord is coming. <clears throat> my answer to my wife is 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. I'm not going to go through it now, but you can read it. That's, I think, how, what we should be doing because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we do pray you'd use your word in our hearts and lives today. And we ask that we might indeed be faithful stewards and good servants. That on the day that the master comes, we will not be ashamed or embarrassed before him at his coming. We pray if there's one here this morning that doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their personal savior that today would be the day that they would settle their account with God and come humbly and broken and say, Lord Jesus, I'm the sinner you died to save. Save me. We'll give you all the glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.